A little while back, Wendy and I were leaving a restaurant. Uh, we had our kids with us. The four of us were leaving a restaurant. And we were walking out, and we walked by a table that had a young couple at it. Uh, looked like they were dating and sitting at their table. And as we walked by, I overheard them say, or I overheard the young lady say to the young man, look at our kids, and then say, oh, When I have kids, they will never use a screen in a restaurant. And uh, and I thought, well, I thought a lot of things in that moment. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't say any of them, thankfully. Uh, But what I said to Wendy when I went out, I I, I think I mumbled something under my breath. I've spoken like someone who has no kids. Talk to me later when you'd like to have a nice warm meal in a restaurant. But anyways, I digress. But the point is, sometimes your perspective is different when you're not in a situation. And the closer you get to a situation can often change your perspective of what actually is going on in a situation. Uh, perspective can play uh, some funny tricks with you sometimes. You ever seen pictures like these where it's perspective, right? I mean, that's the actual leaning tower of Pisa, not a model, and there's the kid that holds it up um, for keeps it from falling. And the actual Eiffel Tower, right, held in a hand, not a model, but it's a pattern of perspective. They look not very impressive and kind of small, but if you were to get up real close, I suspect, to the Leaning Tower of Pisa or to the Eiffel Tower, they'd be a little bit more impressive than what they look like even on the screen. Your perspective changes when you get close to something. Your perspective changes when you actually see something or experience something in person. Have you ever had a, someone recommend a restaurant to you and you can't wait to get there and you go and you're like, oh, this is going to be great, but you go for yourself and you have a terrible experience and suddenly your perspective of that place has changed because you got up close and personal and got to experience it for yourself. Or maybe before you were married, if you're married... You know, you thought, oh, marriage is going to be like this, and marriage is going to be so great, and we are always going to be, and we are never going to be, and, and this is just what marriage is going to be like, and then you got married. And I hope it was exactly the way you dreamed, but I'm guessing there were some things that you probably learned that weren't a part of your dream, because your perspective changes when you get closer. You become a parent, and you think, oh, how hard could this be? Right? And, oh, you know, every, all my friends, they just have, they're just not doing it right. And, and you get there and suddenly your perspective changes when you get closer to something. And that often is the case. Sometimes it works the other way. Uh, that's something that you thought would be impressive and then is not impressive. How many of you have been to Plymouth Rock? <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. You thought... Plymouth Rock. You've heard about it all your life. You've talked to, you know, all the Thanksgiving things, and you thought this must be a massive edifice that you are going to go see. I mean, this must be the rock of all rocks, right? And, you know, they must have just stepped right off the boat and stood right on the side of a mountain, right? And then you go, and there's this, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, to call it a stone might be generous, um, guarded in this, you know, this edifice that's much bigger than the stone itself, 
uh, you know, trying to keep it from, you know, I guess eroding away. And your perspective changes when you get close to something. And so sometimes from a, different, from a distance, things look one way, but when you get closer, they look another way. And here's why it's important, because our perspective affects our conclusions. Our perspective of something will affect our conclusions. It may be not that big of a deal about a restaurant or Plymouth Rock or the Eiffel Tower, but it's a really big deal when it comes to God, because the truth is your perspective of God is going to affect your conclusions about God. My perspective of God is going to affect my conclusions about God. And a restaurant may have the consequence of one bad meal, but if you get things wrong about your perspective about God, there could be eternal consequences. And it's ultimately important that our perspective of God, of who He is, is right on and is accurate. Our worship that we just um, experienced here, singing, uh, worship, what it is in its simplest definition, is simply a response to revelation. It's simply a response to the perspective of God. We sing about wonderful God because of the revelation that we've received of God, and so our worship is a response to that. A lack of worship, then, is either it's one of three things. It's either a lack of knowing the revelation, it's either a, or a refusal to accept the revelation, or a misunderstanding of the revelation. If there's a lack of worship, it's either a lack of knowledge of the revelation, a refusal to accept it, or a misunderstanding of it. And so, a lack of knowledge of it, we try and counter that with our efforts at uh, evangelism and spreading this message of hope throughout the world, global outreach, our missions partners. We want people to know. We don't want there to be a lack of, 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 of knowledge. We want people to know about the beauty and the grace and the love that there is available through God, through Jesus Christ. So we try and counter that one. A refusal to accept the revelation, well, that's a choice that God has given to each and every one of us. He's not forced us to believe, not forced us to follow, invites us to, but gives us the opportunity to choose to follow him as he did from the very beginning. But the third, a misunderstanding of revelation A misunderstanding of who God is, is what I want to talk about this morning. A wrong perspective of who God is. Nehemiah chapter 9, they start, uh, what really happens in this chapter is the getting of a proper perspective of God. It starts out like this, I don't have this verse on the screen for you, but if you have your copy of God's Word... Uh, either in paper form or digital form, Nehemiah chapter 9, starts out with these words. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers." Just a reminder, if you haven't been with us, Nehemiah takes place about 440 B.C. Uh, It's taking place about 440 years before uh, the arrival of Jesus, the Savior. Uh, 
about 440 B.C., and what's happening is the people of Israel, God's people, had been exiled from the city, the nation of Israel, and they're coming back, and they're rebuilding it. Really, in the larger meta-narrative of Scripture, what we know is they're preparing a place for the Savior to come. And so it says, it starts off Nehemiah chapter 9, on the 24th day, they gather and they start confessing their sins. Well, 24th day of the seventh month probably doesn't mean anything to you, but let me just give you a quick idea, a quick background of what's going on. Last week, Pastor Brian was here, and he talked to you about the place where grace meets our sin and the place where God's profound grace meets our profound sin results in profound joy. And he talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was this celebration of God's grace, of what he had done, how he sustained people. The Feast of Tabernacles ends on the 23rd day of the seventh month. So now it's the 24th day of the seventh month. And the people come together, and they once again are weeping and mourning. 23 days later, after Nehemiah last week said, stop your weeping and mourning because this is a feast and you're not supposed to be weeping and mourning. Well, as soon as the feast ends, they start weeping and mourning again. Why? What could be so impactful? What could be so profound? What could have such an effect on them that 23 days later, two weeks, three weeks later, they still are impacted by it and still feel this need to confess? It has to do with their perspective of God that they had recently gained. The perspective of God that they had recently gained from the reading of God's word. Let me remind you again of of the situation. So these are exiles returning back to the nation, right? Before Nehemiah comes, it's, it's not very impressive. They had come back. They had kind of made an effort to rebuild, but it's nothing to write home about. I mean, they, they made an effort, but the walls are still broken down. Buildings are still burned up. There's not much going on. People are working their fields, but basically just to pay taxes and feed their families. Other nations outside of them can come and go, can oppress them, can extort them, can take advantage of them. They really don't have any real identity. Think about what their children would think. There's no books. There's no videos to remind them about God's actions in the past. Their parents will tell them, our God is great. God is good. He's mightier than all the other gods. And think about the children who don't know the old stories, who look around and see, well, if we have such a great God, it looks pretty dismal around here. Walls are a bunch of rubble, and there's a bunch of the, the, the city's broken down. It would be not out of the question for these children to say, How could our God be great if this is what is our living condition? How can God be great if there's so much difficulty? Where is God now? How can you talk about God being good with all of this around us? Look, we're practically slaves, we're open to any attack. The nations who don't follow our God but follow their own gods are prospering and oppressing us. How can you say that this great and mighty God is on our side? And sometimes 
That happens today when people look around. That sometimes people will look around, and maybe it's you, maybe you're sitting here today, and maybe you've looked around and you said, how can you sing about a wonderful God? How can you sing about a wonderful Savior? How can you talk about a wonderful God in one sense, and in the same time, then pray for a missionary who got taken captive and abducted? How can you talk about a wonderful God and look at what's going on in our world when it comes to starvation, when it comes to the the, the race relations, when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to uh, poverty, when it comes to all the things that are going on in our world that are painful? How can you sing about this wonderful God? How can you say that your God is so great and powerful and good? And so many people will look around at these things and they'll come to a different conclusion. They'll come to the conclusion that either God doesn't exist, or if he does, he's not good, or if he is, he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. It's got to be one of these three things, because I look around, and I see this world, and I see the walls broken down, and I see the pain in people's lives, and maybe you've experienced your own pain in your life, or your own tragedy in your life, or you have a loved one that has, and how can God be good And how could God be powerful if this is the world that we live in? So many people from that perspective will draw the conclusion that either God doesn't exist, he's not good, or he's just not able to do anything about it. So is it true that the pain in my life, the difficulty in your life, the tragedy even that many people experience is evidence that either God is uncaring are not powerful enough to do anything, or doesn't exist at all. Is this the proper conclusion about God? It can certainly feel sometimes like when life is difficult that either God has abandoned us, he's just too weak to stop things, or he just doesn't care. But is that true, or does it come from a misguided perspective? And does the answer hold true when we get closer to God? Well, here's what changed in the perspective of the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 9. What happened was the law of God, or the not only the law, but the story of God's people included in the law was read to them. And this is what caused the weeping and the confessing of sin. Remember, you've got a people who they don't read most of them, and even if they could read, they certainly didn't have one of these in front of them, even if it was just the Old Testament I was told. They, they certainly didn't have one of these in front of them. So they, so they went their whole lives without hearing the Word of God. They went much of their lives, it may have been passed on orally by some, but for most of them, they went their whole lives knowing part of the story, but not all of the story. So they looked around and they would grab their perspective from what they see around them, but then finally, when the walls are up, Nehemiah has Ezra the priest stand up and he reads the history of God and his people. And he reads from the law of God. And as he reads, they're broken. They're broken. Why are they broken? Because they learn about the history of who God is, and they learn about who they are. And sometimes that's a hard truth. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 16 and following, they recount six times, talking about who they are, 
six times of how they acted towards God, and then six times of how God acted towards them. And when they got that story, it resulted in something very different when they understood that perspective of God. I'm going to go through them very quickly for you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can follow along, and I'm not going to read the entirety of these passages. But let's just look at it together. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16, Israel's rebellion was the first there. So it starts out in chapter 9, the part I didn't read prior to verse 16, is God's creation, God's goodness, God created, God gave, God made, and he eventually called Abraham, he called this people out, he made them his own, that the idea that they would become a blessing to the whole earth, and how did they respond? Verse 16, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So God, you've been good. You created. You gave us everything that we see. But we're going to go our own way. Stiffen their neck. We don't want you. We want to follow our own desires. And they saw this as their response to God's goodness. So how would God respond to these people? Next verse. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. So they forsook God, but God did not forsake them. It didn't. They, they wanted to go their own way, but God still stayed faithful to his covenant. They wanted a contract, but God was interested in a covenant, and God was keeping a covenant. Now, as I'm going through these, think about your own life, or maybe think about if you're a parent with a child or even a friend with one of your friends, if this friend acted this way towards you. Or your child acted this way towards you, or your spouse acted this way towards you, or your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend acted this way towards you. How would you respond? God responds with grace and forgiveness and mercy. Well, surely now they'll act differently. But next, to the next passage of Scripture, it talks about Israel's next rebellion. Can you go to the next slide, John? Israel's rebellion. They had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. So their response to God's mercy is we're going to create idols. We're going to make for ourselves our own gods. We don't like the God we cannot see. We want a God we can see. So they made a golden calf in order to worship. And they committed great blasphemies against God, hating God, laughing at God, mocking God going their own way. How would God respond to this? God's response, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. In fact, if you kept on reading after this, it would continue to show that not only did he not forsake them in the wilderness, he led them right into the promised land like he said. Not only did he lead them into the promised land, he provided for them in the wilderness. He gave them manna to eat. He gave them meat to eat. He provided water from a rock. He, gave, he kept their sandals from wearing out. Like who would even think of that? But he kept their sandals from wearing out for 40 years walking around the desert. All these things God covered them. God protected them. God did exactly what he would say, even though they made their idols and blasphemed and went their own way. 
And maybe you have too. Maybe you've gone your own way. Maybe you've made your own idols in your life. Perhaps even you've blasphemed God. And how would God respond to you? He responded to the Israelites in great mercy and did not forsake them in the wilderness. Well, surely now, having experienced God's mercy once again, what would they do? Well, you might get the pattern by now. The next thing they do, Israel's rebellion. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn their back, them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. So now you can get the sense of why they are weeping because they are starting to see who they really are as a people. But not only who they really are, but who God really is because God's response Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. So God lets them suffer the natural consequences of their actions, but that's not where he leaves it. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. God didn't leave them here. He let them experience the natural consequence of their actions. This is what you want. This is the way you're going. But, he, but if they, when they cried out, what would you do in that moment? On the third time that your friend says, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. I didn't mean to do it again. Your child says, I know you told me not to. I know you told me it was wrong. I'm sorry, forgive me. I didn't mean to do it again. How would you respond? God responds by hearing, extending mercy, and saving them out of their situation. And certainly they would be grateful and go and then live lives for God. But after that, they had re- after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And the pattern continues. And God's response, and you abandon them to the hand of their enemies. Once again, those natural consequences, but he doesn't leave them there so that they had dominion over them. There was a purpose to abandoning them to their enemies. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times... You delivered them according to your mercy. Starting to get a little convicted about how we sometimes forgive other people or don't forgive other people. Remember that part of the Lord's Prayer? Father, forgive them. Lord, forgive others even as we forgive. How would they respond to God's response once again? And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their their neck and would not obey. Once again, their rebellion against God. And God's response... Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their people of their lands, but he did not leave them there. Nevertheless, I started to like that word preparing this message. I almost thought of titling this this message that word. Nevertheless can be a beautiful word. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Once again, God responds in grace and mercy. This pattern of rebelling, God's mercy. And before we're too hard on the Israelites, 
we might want to take a look at our own lives, the patterns of our own lives, how often we have rebelled and how often we have received God's mercy. When the people heard the reading of the law, so this is what they heard, which includes the history between God and his people, their perspective changed. At the end of their confession, two shifts in perspective about who they are and who God is emerge. So they have a shift of perspective. After hearing all this, this changes their perspective. No longer is it looking around and where is God and who is God. Now they have a perspective of a different perspective of God. And that perspective of this, God is always good even when we are not. The perspective of God changed. What they understood was God is always good even when we are not. What they saw throughout their history is they had rebelled. They were the ones who was faithless, but God was always faithful. And the truth is the closer you get to God, the greater perspective you have of him gives you not only a greater perspective of his grace, of who he is, but also gives you a clearer perspective of who you are yourself. It's like the old uh, illustration when you're trying to talk to someone about um, the gospel and the fact that goodness isn't what ultimately gets you saved. You know, sometimes you'll say, uh, imagine there's a ladder that goes up to heaven. And, uh, you know, the the top of the ladder is God and heaven and the closest to God. The people at the top of the ladder are the closest to God. Who would you put at the top of that ladder? You ask people that question, and you get different answers, but a lot of times you'll get an answer, oh, Billy Graham's up there, Mother Teresa's up there, or, uh, you know, whatever person that thinks is holy and good is up there. But then you ask them the question, where do you think Billy Graham would put himself on that ladder? And usually the answer is probably somewhere near the bottom. Not because he's falsely humble, I would imagine Billy Graham would put himself, not because he's falsely humble, but because the closer you get to God, the more you realize how unlike God you are. The closer you get to that proper perspective of God, you start to have a different perspective of yourself. That's why the Apostle Paul would call himself the worst of all sinners. And we would say, Paul, how could you say that about yourself? Well, he didn't say that about himself when he was a religious Pharisee. He said it about himself when he understood the gospel and how much God loved him, and he got so close to him that he realized how far he really was from him in the sense of not being God himself. We realize that God is God and we are not. So we get closer to God, our perspective changes. May of 2016, there was an Israeli man who uh, petitioned for a restraining order against God. The plaintiff, identified as Mr. David Shoshin, represented himself at a court hearing in Haifa, port city in North Israel. The report noted that God was not present to defend himself. Of course, this article writes... Maybe God was present but didn't feel a need to defend himself. Mr. Shoshin told the court that God had been treating him harshly and not nicely. Though no specific details were given about what exactly happened to make him feel this way, Mr. Shoshin also explained that he had made several attempts to contact police to report God's alleged crimes and that the patrol cars had been sent to his house on ten occasions. 
Police advised Shoshin to try and take out a restraining order. The request for a restraining order was denied by the presiding judge, who said the request was delusional and that the petitioner required help from sources outside the court. My response to Mr. Shoshin would be that could it be that what you lack is a proper perspective of God? Could it be that what's lacking is your judgment and your accusations against God are not against God as he actually is, but against God as you picture him to be? Because when you recount, Mr. Shoshin, the history of your people with God, if you go back to just Nehemiah chapter 9, Mr. Shoshin, you don't have to read the whole Jewish Bible, the whole thing. Let's just read Nehemiah chapter 9. If we just go back there, we see that it is not God who has caused the pain but God who has been faithful. See, at the end of this chapter, all of a sudden it hits them. God had not abandoned us or them to exile. They caused it to happen. The end of the chapter, the last few verses, it says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So they get a proper perspective of God. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. Things are bad upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Syria until now. Things are bad, God. But Lord, don't let it fall upon us. We're asking for mercy. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Well, there's a change of perspective. And I would offer Mr. Shoshin, I would say maybe there's a different perspective. Maybe it's not God that's the problem. It could be us that's the problem. See, I think we live in a world that says the world's messed up. And many people would say God's part of the problem and we are the solution. But Nehemiah chapter 9 says, You have been righteous. We have acted wickedly. It goes on, Behold, we are slaves this day. Things are bad. The land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings. We're paying these taxes whom you have set over us. Say these next four words with me. Because of our sins. That wasn't very convincing. Let's say it once more. Once more, right? Because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Not your fault, God. Things are bad. Things don't look good. But you've been righteous. And we have acted wickedly. What they learned in their proper perspective is God is always good, even when we are not. But the second thing they learned is this. If you cry out to God in distress, and listen to these words, even if you caused the distress, he will always show you mercy. And here is one of the profound lessons of Nehemiah chapter 9 that I think is clearer in this passage than maybe any other place in the Bible. Because it could be that you come into this church today or you come into this church on any Sunday and you see people singing songs 
and you listen to the messages and you think that's wonderful. I'm glad these people are, you know, joyful. I'm glad they're experiencing God's grace, but it's not for me because I have caused the situation that I'm in. And so I have to get myself out of the situation that I've got myself in. You see, sometimes I think the, the, the great, greatest problem is people realizing, look, I've caused the problem, so it's my responsibility to get me out of it. God's not going to help me because God helps those who help themselves. Isn't that in the Bible someplace? It's not. People think it is. So you've got to help yourself, and then God's going to help you. I think there are some people who come in here and come in this church or go into many churches on any given Sunday and they think, well, I've got to get out of this situation myself. I've got to clean myself up and then God will help me. I've screwed up my marriage. I've screwed up my kids. I've screwed up my job. I've screwed up this situation. So it's my responsibility to get myself out of it. But the truth that the people of Israel learned, things were bad. We're slaves. We're being taxed with all of the food, the land. It's not even ours. It's because of our sins. But God, forget not us. Don't forget us. But God, we are crying out in mercy because here's what we've seen time after time after time in our history of our people. They rebelled against you, but time after time after time, when they called out to you, you showed mercy. That you did not abandon them. That even when they caused their own situation, that you did not say, well, wipe your hands, you're stuck in it now. God is not like that. He's a covenant-keeping, steadfast, loving God. That even when you walk away, even when we walk away, even when we say, even when you blaspheme, even when you say, God, I want nothing to do with you, that if you will turn and cry out for mercy, that God will reach out his hand and lift you up. See, they learn that even God is good even when they are not, but they also learned that if you cry out to God in distress, even if you cause the distress, he will always show you mercy. That he is there ready to show mercy to his people. See, crying out to God is the one thing they hadn't tried yet. Oh, they tried to rebuild the walls and they tried to rebuild the temple and they eventually got the temple rebuilt and they eventually got the walls rebuilt and they eventually got the city rebuilt and they got the gates in place. But let me give you a spoiler alert When we get to the end of Nehemiah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not about the walls. It's not about the temple. It's not about rebuilding a city. It's about a people who need a Savior. It's about a people who need a merciful God to show them mercy and grace. Proper response. The proper response comes from a proper perspective of God. They confess and cry out for mercy. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They realized that their current hardship is a result of their sin and not God's unfaithfulness. And they confess this to God. It's never about the wall. This world is a difficult place. You look around and you can see all the things I named earlier and others that came to your mind of why this world is difficult and reasons why people might not believe that God is good or powerful or even exists. 
We try everything to fix it. You've tried everything maybe to fix your life. But the one thing that many people never try is to cry out to God for mercy. Cry out to God and say, God, would you have mercy? Would you save me? Would you set me free? Would you give me life? Work so hard and we think we have to work so hard to accomplish and get ourselves out of the trouble that we got ourselves into. But what we really need to do is call out to the merciful and gracious God and ask him to reach into our situation. There is a distance between God and people, but the question is who created the distance? Did God walk away or have we walked away from him? Nehemiah chapter 9 and other scriptures would show us that God has always been faithful. And he's always there. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 reminds us this. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in the situation that we created for ourselves. Sinners, lost, can't help ourselves, can't dig ourselves out of that hole, can't pay back that debt. Not when we came back. Not when we cleaned ourselves up. Not when we worked ourselves out of it. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because that is the covenant-keeping, steadfast love of God. And he's patient and waiting. Second Peter, Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, don't look around and think that God has forgotten this world. Don't look around and think that God is not involved. Don't look around and think that he's not coming again like he said he was. He's being patient. He's waiting. He's giving you the opportunity to do what those Israelites did, to call out in repentance and to say, God, have mercy on me. Because the situation I'm in is not your fault my fault. It's our fault. See, it's not our world that God kind of intrudes upon. It's his world, and we're the ones that have intruded upon it. We're the ones that have added our sin and our pain and everything else to his world. That's not the way he designed it. It's not the way it always was. It's not the way it always will be. But he gives this moment for you to repent and call upon him in mercy. Proper perspective leads to a proper response. When our perspective about God and ourselves is correct, when we understand his goodness and our sin, when we understand his unending mercy, it leads us to confession, to cry out to him. Our culture says that God is a part of the problem and that we are the solution. The gospel says that we are the problem. And that God is the solution. That's the difference. And the way that you and I respond will bear out what our perspective of God is. If we respond by saying, well, we're just going to go out and fix it. If we respond by saying, we just have to try harder. We just have to put in more effort. To, to, to fix myself. To fix this world. It's all on us. Then our perspective is that God's the problem and we're the solution. Many people would say that today. Many people would say, God's part of the problem. All these wars in the world, all the trouble in the world. God's part of the problem. We're the solution. 
What the gospel says is, no, we are part of the problem. We are the problem. God has provided the solution through Jesus Christ. When you get that perspective, the proper response is, God, have mercy on us. See, the proper response to Nehemiah chapter 9 is not to try harder. Because they did that six times at least, we saw in this chapter. It didn't work. Each time they failed. Each time they went back to their own gods. Each time they went back to their own idols. The proper response is to fall before God. Say, God, have mercy on me. Lord, we need a Savior. They were looking forward to the day that a Savior would come. They're 440 B.C., remember. They were looking forward to the day that a Savior would come. They didn't know when it was. We look back to that Savior that has already come. They were putting faith, their faith in the Savior that would come one day, that God would send them just as he said. We put our faith in that Savior that has come, lived, died for us, resurrected, now at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. Our faith is in Him. So what will you do? We look around at the pain in this world and will you say, well, God doesn't exist because there's too much pain or if He does, He's not good or if He is, He's not powerful. Or will you say, well, I've got to fix this world. Or will you, with this perspective of who God is, say, God, it's not your fault. It's our fault. Lord, would you forgive us? And would you have mercy upon us? For you are our only hope. Let's close in prayer. You're here this morning. And perhaps you came in here Perhaps you came in here and you are in that category of thinking that you have created your own mess and you've got to clean up the mess yourself. God expects you to clean up the mess of life that you have made. That's not what this place is about. That's not what this church is about. That's not what the gospel is about. This place is not a place where you come to learn five tips for cleaning up your life and living a better life. This is a place where you come and say you will never be able to clean up the mess that you have made on your own. And it's only through the grace and mercy of God and his strength that you can be cleansed. That you can be washed clean and forgiven. And so maybe this morning would be the day that you would cry out to God and say, God, have mercy upon me. God, I can't fix it myself. God, you are righteous. I have been wicked. Would you forgive me? Would you be my Savior and my Lord? Maybe this morning would be the morning that you would call upon Him and ask for his mercy. And if that's you this morning, I'd encourage you right in this moment, I give you this moment of sacred space in this service in your week because maybe you don't have a lot of spaces in your week where you can just sit, talk to God, quiet the other noise in your life and your heart and just respond to the word of God.
that's been given to you this morning. And in your space and in your life and in your heart that you would say, God, have mercy on me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I have been wicked. It's not you who have been wicked. I have been wicked. Lord, would you forgive me and would you save me? Would you be the Lord of my life? The Bible says when you do that, God is quick to respond. Mercy, forgiveness, salvation even comes and takes up residence in your life. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. If that's you this morning, I encourage you to take this time and just ask God for that mercy in your life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe you came in here this morning and listening to this message. And you looked at this world around you and you said it's so messed up so messed up. Where is God? Maybe this morning is your morning to just reaffirm your trust and your commitment in God. That it's not God who's messed up this world. God's given it to us. But God, help me to trust today. Help me to trust in you, in your mercy and in your grace. That even in the midst of the rubble and the pain, that I will continue to see that you are good, to see your wonder, even in the midst of difficulty. That no matter what you may be walking through, that God is still good. It may be caused by your own actions, but God is still good. It may be caused by someone else's actions, but God is still good. It may be caused by some sickness or disease, But God is still good. He has not and will not abandon you. He is faithful to his covenant forever. And he's faithful to you. Father, we thank you. God, I thank you that you are the covenant-keeping God. I thank you that you are not like us. We can't. We're so bad at keeping the commitments that we make but you are the covenant-keeping God. I thank you for your steadfast love, your faithfulness to us even when we are faithless, your mercy for us even when we have created our own mess, that when we cry out, that you answer us. Father, may we be a church and may we be a people who understand that it's not you who are the problem and us the solution. Lord, we're the problem, but you have provided through Jesus the solution, and it's in his name we pray.